Um, the first two words of chapter 5 are potentially confusing. King Belshazzar. Who is this king? Um, you might remember at the end of last week, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was king. And in fact, throughout history, these first two words have been something of a contentious issue for historians. See, until about 150 years ago, it was historical fact that the last king of Babylon was King Nabonidus. King Nabonidus was um, Nebuchadnezzar's son. Some people held this up as a reason we can't trust Daniel chapter 5, because doesn't say that Belshazzar is his son? Who is this king? Some people even held this up as a reason we can't accept Daniel as a historical book. So as we come to this chapter, we can't believe what it says to us. Some people held it as that much of a barrier. But in 1854, archaeologists found fragments in modern-day Iraq. And these fragments referred to um, this person, this king, Belshazzar, as Nabonidus' son. Then in 1881, they found this, the um, Nabonidus cylinder. It explains all about Nabonidus, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son, who he, who he was, um, what he did, what he did throughout his reign. And part of what it says and outlines is what Nabonidus did when he was on the throne. And what Nabonidus did was he um, set his son, Belshazzar, in charge of the kingdom, and then he went away and basically lived outside the walls of Babylon. So as we come now to Daniel chapter 5, what this means is we can trust Daniel as a historical book, and we don't have to worry that this conflicts with history, not at all. This told us something very detailed that we only found out in 1881 for certain through history. We know it's historically accurate and it really matters because as we look at a difficult chapter like Daniel chapter 5, we know it's really how the living God dealt with a real king. And so we know that it has a real warning for us today. Firstly, we're going to see the proud oppose God. The king <coughs> builds himself up against God. You might remember in the first couple of chapters, we get this repeated phrase. The king built himself up, built up for himself, built against God, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. See, as we meet this new king, Belshazzar, to set the scene, we're about 20 years on. Nebuchadnezzar's off um, the scene. But we see this pattern of pride continue. Just have a look down at chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. He's got that air about him already, but you could just say, hold on, isn't this just one big party in the first couple of verses? Is it really that bad? Well, at this very time, he's under threat of invasion, and he decides to throw this party as a feast, uh, it's a calendar tradition that they used to um, have basically to celebrate the life of the other gods. And he felt that it was so important that he threw this feast and invited everyone to him because he thought he was untouchable. And in light of all that King Belshazzar knew about Nebuchadnezzar, he still had the arrogance to summon the spoils 
of the invasion of Jerusalem. To see that, he gets in the gold and silver of the God of Israel to top off the party, just to make it one step better for the people there as they look at him as they celebrate this party. Just picture the scene. King Belshazzar drunk at the table with the nobles around him. Women, party, drink. And as Belshazzar wraps his hand around a golden goblet that has come from God's temple in Jerusalem, he's basically saying, look, God, I've got a firm grip on you. God, I'm in charge here, not you. See, building ourselves up is always in opposition to God because building ourselves up as being king of our own lives is the position that God deserves. It's robbing God of his place. Belshazzar would have known this because of his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. But see, here in the first couple of verses, he was blind to the way he was personally opposing God. So you might need to hear that for the first time this afternoon, that building yourself up against God personally opposes him and his place in your life. But probably more likely, you need to be reminded not to become blind to it, like Belshazzar. See, the minute we don't notice, the minute we don't care, the minute that we become blind to it, we're on really shaky ground. I read a book over the summer um, that I've read a number of times called The Enemy Within, and it talks about this ongoing struggle with our desires, mm. and it says this, if you violently wage war against your flesh, you'll win ground. If you cut the flesh any slack, you'll watch it regroup and revive. You may end up worse than before. I wonder, will you recognise the way in which you build yourself up against God? Will you recognise the way sometimes you've overlooked that in your life? What will you do to be picking <coughs> up on it? I wonder, have you got people around you that you're honest, open, accountable with? Have you got the people around you to ask you those tough questions that we don't like to be asked? Because the proud oppose God. And secondly, we see God opposes the proud. What comes next after these first couple of verses has been described as the most vivid image in the whole of literature. And um, here's this famous painting by Rembrandt. See, it's now virtually synonymous with the phrase, disaster is coming. There it is, the writing is on the wall in the top right. There's a hand writing out on the wall. It's petrifying, isn't it, that picture? Just have a look down at verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. What a petrifying picture. 
So as we continue on in the next couple of verses, you might recognise a pattern. See, we've seen a proud king. We've seen some kind of humbling warning from God. And what does he do next? Well, he looks for help. He gathers his wise men. He looks for help wherever he can. Eventually, through the queen, he finds Daniel. Verse 13, Daniel was brought before the king. Daniel then delivers a message. Does it sound familiar? Proud, proud king, something of a sign from God, being humbled, look for help, finds Daniel, Dan, Daniel delivers a faithful message. See, it sounds familiar because it's remarkably similar to what's already happened with King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think that's exactly the point. It's remarkably similar. Despite having heard all of the stories of King Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar here, when humbled by this picture of writing on the wall, doesn't appear humble. When facing the same humbling picture, he goes through his own mechanism. He goes through his own built-up things to try and sort the issue out. His own network of people. His own powers. See what he offers? Have a look at verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to those wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold, plain, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He's offering all he's got. See, that's the third highest in the kingdom, because um, Nabonidus is off in the country somewhere. He's then the second, and he's offering this third place. He's offering all he's got in terms of power, money, He's going through all his proud ways to try and sort this issue out. Again, verse 16, he offered that same thing, gold, purple, to be third highest ruler to Daniel. See what's happening? Belshazzar has not been humbled at all. He's continuing in his proud ways. I wonder what you're like at recognising warning signs. I've got three coming up on the screen. Just turn to the person next to you. Have a look at this first one. What does it mean? Do you know? The person next to you. Good. Wow. Go and call it out. Accelerate. Oncoming traffic have right away. Good. Okay, next one. Have a look. You know what that means? No cars on motorbikes. Yeah, no, mo no cars on motorbikes on the road. Next one. See if you can work out what that means. <laughs> Car on fire. Car on fire? Any, any... Don't light a bonfire on your roof. Um, it actually means no vehicles carrying explosives. That's what it means. <laughs> well, what about the next one? Easy, isn't it? Road ahead closed. But if you're anything like me, sometimes that's difficult to recognise. See, when I see this sign, so often what I do is I plow straight on through and I think somehow I've actually managed to get to where I want to go. In fact, before, um, no, after I planned to say this, Wednesday morning, six o'clock, I was in the car with Archie. We were driving to Birmingham University and we were going through the back streets of Crowton. Um, don't exactly know where we were. We were on the sat-nav and we were trying to get to the M40. 
And there we get to a massive road ahead closed sign. Without even thinking about this, I ploughed straight on through, followed the sat-nav, and I was completely confident that there wasn't going to be a road ahead closed. I was completely confident that somehow I was going to skirt past it and it would be fine. Now, it just so happened that on Wednesday morning, we got to another sign that said road ahead closed and we were able to turn and turn and turn, and we got around it okay. But normally, even when offered a diversion, what I'll do so easily is just plough straight on through and think, I'm sure I can just somehow get to my destination. And inevitably, I'll get to a sign, I'll get to cones, the road will be closed, and I'll turn around. Just a bit annoyed, for some reason, still, even though I could have turned around at any point. See, some people look at this passage and say, is this a fair warning? Is this a sign that King Belshazzar would have recognised? Well, he would have seen through history and through his close family history that the God of Israel opposes proud kings who build themselves up against him. That would have been so raw in his family from King Nebuchadnezzar. And that moment when he saw a human hand appear and write a message on a wall for him, surely at that moment any person would have been thinking, hold on, something above the powers of me has a message for me. Yet, just like me ploughing through the road ahead clothes sign, Belshazzar wasn't bothered to humble himself. Instead, he continued on in his proud ways, trying to sort this issue out himself. God opposes the proud. The Bible's warning is so clear on this, because trying to live as king of our own lives is robbing God of the place that he deserves. The Bible says that God will deal with those that stand against him. Will you listen to God as he warns us in his word? God opposes the proud. And thirdly, God pronounces judgment. Have a look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Is Daniel? 80-year-old little Daniel, and he's unchanged. He just still wants to give this faithful message to the king. He's not interested in the rewards. But what he does is he retells the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. He retells the story of how proud he was, what happened. Have a look at verse 21. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone who wishes. See, he reminds Belshazzar that is exactly what he's not done. And then he turns and he points the finger. He carries on the message. Have a look at verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, 
his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have your goblet from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. Though he knew all this, he didn't humble himself. See, we know that he would have known all about King Nebuchadnezzar's life. We know that though he knew all this, he didn't humble himself when given this warning by God. This should remind us that we do have a responsibility in light of what we know about God to respond to him. We have no excuse. And then he carries on and delivers this message of what is going on with this writing on the wall. Have a look there at verse 26 to 28. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found one thing. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. See what he's saying? Mene, God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, just exactly the words that came out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth as he was humble. That is exactly what God is telling this king now. He is saying, you are not in control. Though you live like it, though you speak like it, you are not in control, I am. Tekel, you king, you have been measured against my perfect standard and you've been found wanting. You are not good enough. Parsin, Perez, everything that you have built up for yourself, this whole empire, everything you've hoped for, hoped in, built up, it will be taken away. And just as God's judgment is delivered there to him, that very night it is executed. See, and what would have been happening in the city is there was two openings to the river either side of the base of the city. And what they did as they came to invade is they stopped the water flowing either side. So at this very moment, they'd have been waiting at either side of the city, waiting for the water to drop, 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 until the moment they could walk in, walk up, and slay the king. That very night, the king is slain and the kingdom is divided. The warning is clear. God will judge. He is in complete control. For us, it won't be immediately following a warning like this. The Bible says it will be when we die or when Jesus comes back. And the Bible says that unless we humble ourselves, just like King Belshazzar, we will be weighed on the scales and found wanting. See, in that moment, when we stand before God in judgment, every thought and word and deed of our life will be on show to God. And the reality is that every single person who has not humbled themselves will be found wanting. Romans 3 verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. And to humble ourselves means to admit we're not good enough and to trust in Jesus that his perfect life is measured on the scales for us see when we do trust in Jesus in that moment 
we're assured of eternity in heaven with him. We're spared from the judgment we deserve. And instead, every single person in the whole of history who has humbled themselves is spared from that judgment because of Jesus' judgment on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18, you might know, says, Christ died for sins once for all. That's all time, all people across all history. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But this chapter warns us that if we continue to stand against God, we will have everything that we hope for, hope in, everything that we build up against God taken away from us, and we'll be without God for eternity in the place the Bible calls hell. Look, if you're anything like me, that's uncomfortable to hear. It's a frightening reality. But see, as we look at Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5, the Gospel is an announcement of salvation to those who are humbled by God and judgment to those who remain in defiant rejection of Him. This is the Gospel of Daniel chapter 4, of Nebuchadnezzar who humbles himself and sees salvation, and Daniel chapter 5, of King Belshazzar who is not humbled, who remains in defiant rejection of him and faces judgment. This is the Gospel that we hold out to our world. I wonder, as we hear this, we should cling to Christ as our only hope, Will you see the seriousness of judgment and cling to Christ? You may be sat in the room this afternoon and have heard a fair amount of this, maybe heard about Jesus a lot before. This passage is so clear. Don't put off making a decision because judgment is coming and it is serious. Part of the reason it really doesn't sit well with us when we talk about it is because we have friends and family that we dearly love that don't yet trust in Jesus. But the danger is we become blissfully, we become blissfully ignorant to this truth. We become like me, just bombing on through a road ahead closed sign. We don't let the truth about it affect our actions because we don't really want it to affect our emotions. The danger is we hold it at arm's length because though we believe it's true, we don't want to let it become raw in our emotions. We look to share the seriousness of God's judgment to those who don't yet see it. See, there must be a point as we look to share Jesus with our friends that we're ready to say, look, we've talked about this before, but I really want you to know, I believe there is a time where you will face God in judgment. I've been reading um, recently the, um, uh, the Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, in the 18th century, his autobiography. He's probably most famous for um, his preaching and some of his tract writing that he handed out. I've been most challenged by how clear he was on his view of judgment and how that affected what he said. He was so urgent to share the good news about Jesus with people because he was so clear on his, his view of judgment. 
Here's just an extract, and it will make it very clear. Time is short, life is uncertain, judgment is near, eternity is long. What shall it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? I do pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. See, as we close, it might feel like a heavy burden, but just have a look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, the end of chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. When we recognise the seriousness of God's judgment, we should cling to Christ all the more and be confident that his ways are right. Will you cling to Christ today as you go away? Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you so much that this passage is clear. Thank you that all your ways are right and everything you do is just. And that those who walk in pride, you are able to humble. Father, thank you that your sovereignty and salvation is grace to those who humble themselves. Father, please would we recognise today that it is serious for those who continue in defiant rejection of you. Father, please would you help us as we look to speak that into our world. Father, would we cling to Christ as our only hope. Amen.